0: Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we are continuing with Russia in Revolution, we're doing the first chapter that sets up the situation in Russia, society, so far it's talked a little bit about the very decentralized and disparate rural population, that kind of organized into small communities where they would work together, and efforts to try and centralize things more and some information about religion and how important religion was, even if again it was not necessarily a centralized power structure. So, let's continue with this week's reading. Industrial Capitalism The origins of Russia's industrial development go back into the 18th century, when the state-owned mines and metal works of the Orals had been world leaders. But it was the perception of Russia's relative decline within the international system that prompted the state to embark on a program of rapid industrialization. Footnote 84 Ivan Vishnegradsky, Minister of Finance 1887-92, promoted railway building as a way of stimulating domestic mining and the iron and steel industries. He stabilized the ruble, and stepped up exports of grain to enable the government to borrow on world financial markets, and he placed high tariffs on the import of coal and oil to protect Russia's infant industries. It was, however, his successor as finance minister, Sergei Vita, 1892-1903, to 1903, who threw himself into an ambitious program of state-backed industrialization. Between 1890 and 1901, the length of the railway track grew from 30,600 to 56,500 kilometres. The most notable achievement being the Trans-Siberian Railway. This, of course, had key strategic importance, though any economic benefit was scarcely felt by 1914. In turn, railway construction stimulated the mining and metallurgical industries of the Donbass, which became a major area of foreign capital investment. In 1897, Russia followed other countries in adopting the gold standard, in the belief that this would facilitate the government and private borrowers obtaining funds on the capital markets. The alliance with France in 1894 accelerated French and Belgian private investment, mainly in mining, metallurgy and engineering though much also went into banking, insurance and commercial firms. British private investment was critical for the development of the new oil industry in Baku, Batumi and Grozny, and in gold mining. German investment too was significant, despite perception that Germany threatened Russia's strategic interests. By 1913, foreign capital accounted for around 41% of total investment in industry and banking. A potential source of anxiety was Russia's reliance on trade with Germany, which amounted to some 40% of total foreign trade by value. Footnote 85. State-backed industrialization was underpinned financially by the export of grain, the value of the turnover in foreign trade growing eightfold, between 1860s and 1909-1930. to 1930. Too great an emphasis on the role of the state risks overshadowing the fact that Russian industry had a robust private sector. Consumer goods dominated industrial production, with textiles and foodstuffs accounting for about half of gross output by 1914. The estimable growth rates achieved in the 1890s segued into a downturn in 1900 that lasted into 1909. Therefore, the armaments program gave a new boost to industrial growth, with total output growing by 5% a year between 1909 and 1913, compared with an average of 3.4% a year between 1885 and 1913 as a whole. Footnote 86. By 1913, the Russian Empire ranked 5th in the league table of industrial nations, after the USA, Germany, Britain and France. A significant achievement. Yet, in terms of output per head, Russia was closer to Bulgaria and Romania, US output being six times that of Russia on this measure. Moreover, Russia remained overwhelmingly an exporter of foodstuffs and an importer of finished and semi-finished goods the connection between industrialization and urbanization was not as close as in many countries, since textile entrepreneurs, in particular, took advantage of the supply of cheap labor by locating their factories in the countryside. Yet industry, and especially trade, were a crucial spur to the rapid growth of Russia's towns. The urban population doubled to 25.8 million, between 1897 and 1917, although this still did not quite constitute a fifth of the empire's population. By 1913, there were 100 towns of over 50,000 inhabitants and more than 20 of over 100,000. Footnote 87. By 1914, St. Petersburg had a population of more than 2.2 million, making it the world's eighth-largest city and Moscow had a population of over 1.6 million. Recent historians have challenged the Chekhov-inspired image of provincial cities as cultural deserts from which the educated longed to escape. Many provincial capitals boasted an intelligentsia that proudly mapped the natural history and ethnography of its region, building schools, museums, libraries, and theatres, and developing a local press. Footnote 88. The rise in the urban population was largely the result of peasant migration, though much of this was seasonal in character, with peasants returning to the countryside to help with the harvest. In 1900, the proportion of inhabitants of St. Petersburg who had not been born in the city was 69%. The rapid growth of the urban population led to severe overcrowding and appalling living conditions. An average of 3.2 persons lived in a single room apartment, and 3.4 persons in a cellar, twice the average for Berlin, Vienna, or Paris. Footnote 89. St. Petersburg enjoyed the dubious distinction of being the most unsanitary capital in Europe. In 1910, more than 100,000 people died in a cholera epidemic. In 1920, 42% of homes were found to have no water supply or sewage disposal. Footnote 90 The rapidity of urban growth compelled municipal authorities to take responsibility for water supply, street lighting, transports, schools, and hospitals, but the quality of such services on average was extremely poor. This was partly because tax revenues were paltry and partly because municipal authorities were often spectacularly incompetent. Moscow was something of an exception. By the First World War, the city Duma had overseen the installation of 20 kilometers of streets with electric lighting, a reasonable system of water supply and sewage, a tram network, and extensive free health facilities. In general, it fell to philanthropic organizations to provide basic medical and other services, to the urban poor. The emerging class of industrialists and financiers was divided by region and by industrial sector, and these divisions translated into different orientations towards the autocracy, although some industrialists emerged out of the traditional estate of merchants and, to a lesser extent, the estate of townspeople Those who took up the opportunities offered by economic growth tended to go into commerce rather than industry. The textile manufacturers in the Moscow industrial region were the most influential sector of homegrown capitalists. They tended to be socially conservative and paternalistic in their style of management, many coming from old believer backgrounds. Unlike their counterparts in iron and steel, they did not depend on state orders. And after 1905, they were supportive of political reform, even forming a noisy progressist party. Footnote 91 By contrast, the textile manufacturers in the region around Lodz, known as the Polish Manchester, were largely German, and they adhered to an autocratic form of industrial relations. The critical sectors of heavy industry and transportation depended on the government for orders, subsidies and preferential tariffs, so entrepreneurs in these sectors, many of whom were foreign, did little more than gripe at bureaucratic control. In St. Petersburg, the owners of metalworking and engineering works, together with the big bankers of the city, were fairly well organised, but primarily concerned with ensuring their influence within government circles, rather than supporting reform in politics or the modernization of industrial relations. In the Donbass, owners of mines and iron foundries were often foreign. The Welshman John Hughes founded the iron works that grew into the city of Donetsk today, and it fell to the engineer managers, themselves ethnically mixed, to support modest reform of industrial relations, largely to minimize the turnover of workers. In general, industrialists of South Russia, as they called themselves, were happy to tolerate industrial relations that were paternalistic at best, iron-fisted at worst, and were no champions of political reform. Footnote 92 Government policy was generally favorable to commerce and industry. Footnote 93 Taxes on urban buildings, business licenses, corporate capital and profits, income from securities, bank accounts and inheritances were all very modest, and income tax was not introduced until 1916. Nevertheless, the government cannot be said to have pursued a course that consistently favoured the interests of industrial capital. Many officials, for example, still associated private enterprise with personal greed and with exploitation of the people. This group was significant in the Ministry of the Interior, which, with an eye to social stability, urged employers to practice a policy of guardianship towards their employees. The Ministry of Finance advocated a more modern style of industrial relations, supporting a modest degree of protective legislation including a factory inspectorate, set up as early as 1882. Yet, since the autocracy never failed to take the side of employers in the event of open conflict, the power of employers within the enterprise was barely limited by law. Working conditions were wretched. According to Witte, the worker, raised on the frugal habits of rural life, was much more easily satisfied, than his counterpart in the West, so that low wages appeared as a fortunate gift to Russian enterprise. Footnote 94 A 10 or 11 hour working day was commonplace. Workers sometimes slept at their machines or in filthy dormitories. Industrial accidents happened all the time, yet most workers were not covered by social insurance and were lucky to receive a few rubles in compensation if they were injured. The two most important factory laws were one in 1885, prohibiting the nighttime employment of women and children, and the other in 1897, restricting the working day to 11 and a half hours. Small workshops were excluded from the legislation, although they probably enjoyed the majority of the country's workforce, and certainly most of its women workers. Needless to add, strikes and trade unions were illegal. However, there were some employers, especially among the textile manufacturers of the Moscow industrial region, who sought to improve the lot of their employees. In 1900, the Tregornia Mill in Moscow won a gold medal at the World Fair in Paris for sanitary conditions and care for the daily life of workers. This mill belonged to the Prokhorov merchant dynasty, and after 1917, Ivan N. Prokhorov would stay on as advisor to the now nationalized enterprise. Footnote 95. Industrialization and urbanization had the effect of unsettling the system of social estates, whereby the state had historically sought to administer society by creating different legal administrative categories, each vested with different privileges and obligations. In particular, it served as a means of ensuring recruits to the army and taxes to the state. Historically, the crucial distinction had been between those who were obliged to pay the poll tax, which was abolished in the 1880s, the mass of peasants, and those who were exempt. Whether one belonged to the nobility, the clergy, the merchants, the townspeople, or the peasantry, one's estate status determined the kind of taxes one paid. The duties one owned to the state, one's access to law, and the economic and educational opportunities opened to one. After the peasant estate, the second largest was that of townspeople, Mechan,, which comprised artisans, petty traders, and householders, and which, in 1897, numbered 13.4 million. Footnote 96. The reforms of Alexander II had pointed towards the gradual elimination of estate categories, but under his successors, the government opted to preserve the system in an effort to increase social control. Internal passports for peasants were maintained, separate land banks for peasants and nobility were established, elections to the Zemstvost were by curia based on social estate, and noble status for recruitment to high bureaucratic or military office continued to be important. The system was not completely unresponsive to economic and social change, footnote 97. Peasants petitioned to become townspeople. Townspeople petitioned to become merchants. Their number reached 600,000 by 1917. And wealthy merchants petitioned to become nobility. Nevertheless, the estates of merchants and in particular, of townspeople, maintained a corporatist and patriarchal character that was increasingly at odds with social and cultural change, and from the end of the 19th century, the local boards that managed the affairs of each estate were increasingly strapped for cash, more concerned with dispensing charity towards their needy members than with carrying out administrative functions. Footnote 98. Industrialization and urbanization created a working class that did not fit into the traditional system of social estates. Most workers continued to be classified officially as members of the peasant estate. In 1900, 2.81 million workers were employed in factories, mines, railways, and steamships. If one includes construction workers, artisans, laborers, forestry, and agricultural wage workers, then the total comes to 14 million. Footnote 99. The number employed in factories and mines grew to around 3.6 million in 1917, by which time the wage earning workforce was approaching 20 million. Footnote 100. In 1913, 92% of the industrial workforce was concentrated in European Russia. The proportion of the workforce in the oldest industrial center, the Urals, Had fallen from 15.2% in the 1870s to 10.2% in 1913, while the share of the workforce in the Donbass had risen rapidly to 15.3%. Footnote 101. Workers were recruited overwhelmingly from the peasantry, snatched from the plough and hurled into the factory furnace, in the memorable phrase of Trotsky. Footnote 102. There was undoubtedly a process of proletarianization taking place, whereby workers cut their ties with the land, one that was principally evident in St. Petersburg. There in 1910, it is reckoned that about 60% of the city's workforce had been born in the city. In 1908, the average length of service of the city's metal workers was 5 years 3 months, and 53% of married metal workers had no ties with the land compared with 35% of single workers. Workers in the capital came from rather distant provinces, so it was harder for them to maintain a vital connection with the land than it was elsewhere. Footnote 103. In regions such as the Central Industrial Region, a centre of textile production, and in the Earls, the centuries-old center of mining and metallurgy, a more symbiotic relationship existed between field and factory, in which some family members worked for wages while others tended the farm. According to the 1918 Industrial Census, 30% of workers had access to a family plant, and 20% worked the land with the help of family members. Footnote 104. Gradually, everywhere the average length of service of industrial workers increased and the proportion of those whose parents had also been workers grew. As this happened, more and more employees began to think of themselves as workers. The process was facilitated by the fact that the concentration of workers was high. About 58% of industrial workers in European Russia were employed in enterprises of more than 500 workers. A much higher level of concentration than in Western Europe, and this is a key to understanding why it proved relatively easy to mobilize these workers in strikes and demonstrations. In a few cities too, working-class districts began to emerge, such as the Vyborg district in St. Petersburg and the zamosk district in Moscow. For young workers in particular, the city offered cultural opportunities, evening classes, schools, clubs, libraries, theatres, not to speak of the commercial forms of leisure, discussed in chapter 2, and this increased their sense of distance from the rural world in which their parents and grandparents had grown up. Already in 1897, for example, over half of all male urban workers and two-thirds of metal workers were illiterate. Footnote 105 Nevertheless, the emergence of the self-identified working class should not be read as suggesting social homogeneity. The differing strengths of the ties with the land, the gender divide, big differences in levels of skill and education, and wide variations in conditions of employment across different industrial and commercial sectors all served to divide workers. It would require political activity and ideological contestation if a heterogeneous labor force were to be transformed into a working class. And that's going to do it for this week's reading. This was a pretty short episode this week, but the next section will be chunky. We will finish this chapter next week, and it's going to be a bit of a longer one. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, suggestions, You can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on twitter at leftistreading. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts. And you can also go to patreon.com slash abnormalmapping to support the network in general. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.